you again for coming. Just I like to give a disclaimer because I don't know when people will step into the teaching. But I like to give a disclaimer at the beginning of every time. I understand people believe vastly different about the book of Revelation. All the way down from has it happened, will it happen, uh, you know, are we in the middle of it right now to pre-trib, mid, post-trib. I'm okay with all of that, but I'm trying to give you what I have landed on. And as I said before, I try to be fair that as I study it out deeper, if I see things I need to change, I'm good to change too. So I'm not acting like my way is the only way or the only right way. Uh, the one thing about prophecy, anytime you study it, you, you just have a lot of perceptions. But I'll say what I said before. I try to give it to you in the Bible to make sense of it. And if I can't find it in the Bible, I will always try to say it's just my opinion. If you're jumping in with us tonight for the first time, you will notice on the screen, on the slides that are behind me, a little green check mark. That little green check mark means look at your worksheet. That's to fill in the blank so you can take it with you. And then, of course, on the back, I hope you take plenty of notes to study uh, so it'll help you understand. So let's jump into chapter 4. Here's what we're talking about. We're going to have a recap and kind of go from where we've been over the last seven weeks. Here, is, here it is. This has been one of our biggest things we've held on. I'm the Alpha. This is Jesus. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He who is, who was, and who is to come. I love this phrase. We didn't really talk that much about the phrase, the Almighty. We landed on this thought. I thought this was a great lesson where time was a person. The beginning and the end has a start and a finish. It's at the same place. Time is not linear, continual forever. My belief is time goes out, does a U-turn, comes right back. And we talked about that in depth. Then we had this thought. The church is distinctly different and set apart from all peoples and the nations of the earth. And because of such, we looked at that the book of Revelation will be dealt with with these three nations. Uh, the church is a nation. I know we look at it as a denomination. But the church is a nation of people, a kingdom of priests. Uh, so when you think church, you've got to think outside grandmama's denomination and where you were raised and what your personal... Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Catholic, Kojic, whatever you are, you have to think outside a denomination and go to holy nation. Because God, my opinion, doesn't see us as a denomination. He sees us as a holy nation. And he treats us differently. We're going to look at that in depth tonight. And then he deals with the Jew and Gentile. So we kind of had this thought in the beginning that Revelation 1, 2, and 3 is God dealing with the church that's why they show up first, and then he does an out and back, and he begins to deal with the other two nations that are left, the Jewish nation and the Gentile nation. And now we get to jump into chapter 2. Will everybody just clap chapter 2? Uh, I would love to say that we'll get through it over the next two weeks, but probably not. I just want to take my time. I've given myself plenty of time. I've given us about 30 weeks to cover 22 chapters. So, or Yeah, 22 chapters. So... We have some time to play and we have some weeks that we can stretch things out a little deeper. But here's where we're going to go tonight in Genesis, I mean Genesis, Revelation chapter 2, is we're going to be talking about the seven churches over the next several weeks and why these specific churches got letters written to them of all the churches that were available why were these the ones picked by Jesus? And then not only that, what we're going to focus on tonight is why seven of them? Why not two? Why not 20? 
Or was this all there were? My belief is there were a lot more churches by 96 AD. Uh, house churches, the gospel had spread pretty good. But in the book of Revelation, these seven get picked by God. And here's a thought we've had before. And one of the reasons we said that these sevens, and this was a few lessons back, uh, one of my thinking of they separated and they're in Asia Minor up in kind of western Turkey is God wanted us to see that he's going to deal with the churches differently than he deals with the Jewish nation. This pink promised land slide is the land that was promised to Abraham, which as we move through the book of Revelation, what's going to happen is God, as he pours out his wrath uh, through the trumpets and through the vials, the bowls, and the seals, and he pours out that, what it's going to do is begin to funnel the entire world into this geographical area so that the, the last battles before Jesus Christ sets up his kingdoms will be inside this pink area. Now, you know, maybe we'll talk about what will America play a part and all these others, but I do know from what I've studied that 99% of all the rest of the end of the world that we would call the end before Jesus establishes his kingdom will be inside the pink. And so my assumption was, again, and I'm going to go there again tonight, the churches are, are distinctly different. Uh, this is an interesting look. Um, this was done by a forensic uh, Richard uh, Neve out of the University of Manchester, England. Uh, this is not the typical Jesus you see on the Sistine Chapel. Uh, but John will write this from Jesus giving a revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, I showed you a little artist picture the other night, but this is what was said forensically to take bone samples from the time that Jesus lived in the region of Galilee where he lived. So they took bone samples of males from Galilee 2,000 years ago and I guess as only science and forensics can do, uh, based on the DNA of the bones, that this is what the typical male would have looked like from that region of Galilee. Curly hair, short, kind of more stocky. Uh, and so that is a you know, brown eye, definitely different than the blue-eyed, lily-white Jesus that gets painted on all the Sistine chapels with his finger out. Uh, and I, I don't know how real that would be, but it just shows you that there are people that are thinking about this historical Jesus and, and what he meant. But Jesus will say this of himself because he's the one that is writing the letters to the church. So let's just look at that. Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he's first in everything. So what I want you to understand is there is, this isn't my opinion, it's scriptural. I do not see anywhere in scripture where Christ is separate from his body. Even right now, though he is in heaven preparing a place, he indwells us with his spirit. He's with us right now. In this room dwells the spirit of Christ, but he's also in heaven, which is weird, uh, preparing a place for his people. This verse, Ephesians 1.22, and I want you to start pondering now where we're going to go tonight. 
God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things. And then this phrase is just mind-blowing. If you ever want to dig it out, it's, it's a whole other topic in itself. But it's, it's good for people who love to dig. He has authority over everything for the benefit of you and I. And so you have to think rather than detriment of me, the benefit of me. Whatever God has for us. And I'm going to try to lay it out of what I think that is in Revelation. But whatever it is, if I miss it, you miss it. Other preachers miss it. The end result is we're going to benefit from it. And we're not going to go under. Here's where we're going. Uh, with Jesus' statement of himself to understand what the next few weeks will look like, it's the Jesus who was. That's the historical Jesus, the one that died on the cross for us, the one that came, the son of David, the Jesus who is the one that is mediating for us right now in heaven. He's our high priest. He represents us before the throne room of God. And then the book of Revelation is the one who is to come. Now here's my thought to this. If this is the one that's authoring this book, he who was, he who is, and he who is to come, and we talked about that breakdown, I really believe that this who is Jesus, this mediating priest, that mediates for the sins of you and I and the sins of the world is a different, not different in state, but in work than the Jesus who is to come because he's coming as the judge. He is coming to bring judgment, which is why, again, I believe the church will be dealt with first from the mediating priest of Jesus before the judgment of Jesus is unleashed upon this planet. That's my thought. Here's how the letters will play out. Each letter... There's seven of them, four of them in chapter 2, three in chapter 3. Each letter, because the author of the letter is who was, who is, and who is to come, each letter will, will touch something both past, personal, and prophetic. In other words, we're going to look at the history of every church, because that's important, then the personal thing, implications to you and I today, because all of these churches are prophetic, meaning that they speak to the future. They don't just speak to 2,000 years ago. These letters will be a roadmap of the prophetic future of the church, not of the end of the world. That was the book of Revelation. The letters that will be written to those churches will be a roadmap of the prophetic future of the church. These seven churches, and we'll get into it deeper tonight, but in the weeks ahead. These seven churches are going to be our roadmap. We are going to go through each of them and begin to see that there was a specific reason that Jesus wrote to these churches because as we go through them, we will see a historical roadmap of us. We get to see ourselves played out here. We get to see where we are in this picture. So this book wasn't just written to seven churches 2,000 years ago. But in some weird way, only the Spirit of God can do, it is a book that is still moving forward. It's still happening. It's still taking place today. And we're going to jump in and see all of that. Let's look at this verse because this is what we're going to hold on to tonight. And all I can say now is just buckle up because we're going to go all over the place. We're going to go Old Testament, New Testament, and we're going to really dig some things out. But let's read it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. This is the meaning of the mystery, which I think is interesting. 
Again, Jesus is not trying to keep it hidden, but he does call it a mystery. And then he says, here it is. Here's the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven go to the lampstand. So he's about to unveil the mystery. The seven stars are the seven angels or the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So in this mystery that is being unveiled, it's not just churches and angels. There's seven of them. The next verse is found in chapter 3, verse 1. And it's interesting. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, that was a church. We'll deal with it in the weeks ahead. And this is an interesting phrase. These things say he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So we don't even get three, three chapters in. And in every chapter we're having to deal with why... Is this number seven popping up all the time? Why does this thing keep coming? This number, seven churches, seven angels, and seven spirits around the throne. Is this just happenstance? Is it mathematical? Does God just love the number seven? Was it seven because they were the closest in proximity and the eighth church was too far away to get a letter to it? Were there only seven churches and no more, so God was just kind of hamstrung to these seven uh, I believe that there's a mystery to why he picked seven churches, to why he's holding seven angels in the palm of his hand over those seven churches, and why there's seven spirits around the throne, and why there's seven days of creation, and why there's seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and why that there are seven years of tribulation that will come. None of it to me is happenstance. It's not happenstance that there's seven days of the new creation or the old creation. Not happenstance that there's seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Not happenstance that there's seven angels over the churches. Not happenstance that there's seven churches. And neither is it happenstance that there's seven years of tribulation. Nothing about this is happenstance. Everything of this God that sees from beginning to end, everything he has done is methodical. It's not because he's giddy about the number seven. It's not because it's Vegas, lucky seven. Let me hope I get a seven. It's been very methodical from the beginning of time that this mystery of the number seven would speak volumes to why Jesus himself would choose seven letters to seven churches who have seven angels that rule through those churches that would come from the head of the church, Jesus, who would speak seven things on the cross, who would also be the wisdom of the, of the old creation that in seven days would create it, which is literally mind-blowing to me. I don't know about to you. So to really understand why I land where I land, that the church is distinctly different. Could it be that in this number seven that God is trying to get our attention? And it's not just seven for the sake of the number seven, but because it's a prophetic book, because it's written from an eternal mindset, because his mindset is different than my own, could God, in picking these seven churches, be telling us not just something about every individual church, but the underlying cause of why there's seven of them? 
So here's what we're going to do tonight to, to even make sense of where we're going in the future is we're going to unveil the mystery of seven. And by the time we've unveiled it, I pray that it opens your heart to see that the mystery of this thing called the local church, the body of Christ, is truly, astoundingly, the mind of God to this planet for this day and hour. And this seven of them that we're going to work through is different. So let's go through it. Let's go into the Bible to the first time the number seven is really mentioned. And so what I'm going to do is go back, since we've been teaching that Jesus is both the beginning and the end, and the Bible has a beginning, Genesis, and an end, Revelation, how silly to try to figure out what does the number seven mean from the book of Revelation. So let's just catch an airplane and go back to the beginning and go, what could God be telling us about the number seven of why he would have chosen seven in Revelation? And so I would encourage those of you that love to study the Bible. Anytime you get stuck, all right, you get stuck in the Bible, it's, it's often rather than going forward toward the book of Revelation, when you get stuck, it's better to go reverse, because the way God reveals is in order. And so, you know, you hear my dad laugh and I make fun of myself. It's why I love the book of Revelation, uh, the book of Genesis, because it's the beginning seed of everything God's ever going to think about. So when I find myself stumped, I automatically teach myself, just go to the book of Genesis and find the beginning point and run the rabbit. So that's what I did with the number seven in Genesis chapter two, verse two. This is what shows up. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So on your worksheet, I want you to just make a note of these because I'm going to pull them all out at the end. But the first thing we notice about seven, it's connected to the work of God ending. It's not connected to a beginning. It is connected to an ending. And that ending is connected to the ending of work to bring us to rest. Therefore, if I go back into Revelation now and I just stopped here alone, I'm going to go deeper, but if I just stop superficial, I would have to stop with the thinking that he chose seven churches to say to us that this church that I'm going to speak to, these seven churches, will bring an end to my work of grace on planet earth and it will bring my children into rest so that God when he picks the number seven is going to tell me that this is going to be an ending work these seven churches are going to be an ending work of what God is going to do on the earth before he does the next thing you remember what I said everything he begins he has to end well, the reason he chose seven is because seven is a sign of ending his work, bringing into rest. The next verse, Genesis 2, 3. I love this one. God blessed the seventh day. He sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work. Again, number seven is connected to the blessing of God, not the curse of God. I would just challenge you, if the book of Revelation is the playing out of the curse of God, the wrath of God coming upon the earth, 
Then the number seven, the moment he, he, the moment he said to the seven churches, from God's mind, he's already connecting, you're not cursed, you're blessed. And not only that, you're sanctified. You're different. If I, if I choose the number seven, it's always going to be connected to the ending of a work, to the sanctification, meaning totally different, nothing like it, nowhere else, and I'm going to bless it, and I'm going to bring you to a place of rest. Hence, I don't believe the church is going to be going through the tribulation having to work and toil. I believe God is going to rest us to himself, bring us to himself, because God is going to end the... This is my opinion. I believe God is going to end the work of the church as being the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the pillar of truth. He's going to remove us off of the planet. He's going to bring us to himself. And when he ends that work of grace and the pillar of truth has been released off of the planet, the deceptive lies of the enemy can begin to work to deceive the world because the pillar of truth has been removed. Because God's work with the church is finished. I don't need the church anymore to do my bidding on the earth. Because now what's going to do my bidding are the seals that I begin to open. The angels that are released to go to the four corners of the earth. The frogs that will come up. The, I, don't, I just don't see the work of the church at all in the book of Revelation because I believe we've ended it. Here's what the word sanctified means. Kadesh is the Greek word. This is on your worksheet. It means, so, so I'm not just making it up, but this is the meaning. It means to be set apart, to be completely different, not sort of different, completely different, and these three words. It's regarded as holy, sacred, and hallowed. If we had time to really go into the Old Testament, it's not our point tonight for this teaching, but if we had time to go into the Old Testament, we would find that everything holy, sacred, and hallowed is distinctly different when it comes to judgment and God judging things. God always put those that he was going to judge, he always separated away those he weren't going to judge whether that was in Egypt with the land of Goshen, whether it was with Noah in the ark, God always, anytime he's dealing with those that he considers his own, he always dealt with them differently. All right? Next verse. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. And this has been a difficult one. I've held on this a lot in debating when I've debated whether or not the church will go through the wrath of God. This has been one that I've always brought to people and I've waited on a great answer back, but I don't know if I always get the answer I would like. Doesn't mean I'm right, but here it is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to what? He didn't appoint us to wrath. I know in our egotistical mindsets as Christians, we think God needs us to go through the tribulation to prove something to people. Because we're going to have to be here to witness to people. We're going to have to be here to lead them to the Lord. And my thinking is, don't, we need to understand He's done with us. This is our shining moment. This is our time to get busy. We don't get busy after the wrath starts coming and after the seals are poured out. 
If that's when we get busy, we're in a heap of trouble because there won't be all of the, let's just get on social media. There won't be any of that here anymore. There won't be radio and all of the communications we have. That will be annihilated by the time the earthquakes begin to happen and the famines begin to hit and everything begins to go on. Why? Because God is done with the work of his church on earth right now. And now it's time for his judgments to take over and begin to work. And so this is what Thessalonians says. God didn't appoint you to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus who died for us. Whether we are awake or asleep, we should what? Y'all keep reading on. Where? With who? Where? Where is he? Okay, here would be my thought. Just logic. If I'm not appointed to wrath because I'm supposed to live together with him, I just need to look in Revelation and ask the question, where is Jesus during the wrath? Is he around the throne or is he on the earth? If he's on the earth, I'm totally good to hang out here for seven years and go through it. No problem. But if he's in heaven, I need to go be with him. Because the moment wrath comes, I'm to be appointed to be with him, not to be appointed to be in the wrath. So my question would just be, once the wrath comes, where is he? Because wherever he is, that's where I've been appointed to be. And I don't know how he's going to get me there. You know, there is no word rapture. Good. I don't know how he's going to get me there, but he's going to get me with him. I don't know how he got me born again, but he did that too. I don't know how he came out of a virgin's belly, but he did that. I don't know how he came up out of the grave three days and ascended to heaven. I got a clue. I don't even know how the city floats called heaven and how there's streets of gold and flying horses, but I believe. So if I can believe that there's a flying horse and a street of gold and a floating city and a Jewish dude that came up out of the grave and ascended into heaven, he's coming back with millions of angels riding on horses with swords. He's going to take over a pitchfork devil and kill him and blow him up and annihilate him. We're going to rule and reign forever. Could I just maybe believe that he could suck me off the planet and take me to himself? If he can put himself into the womb of a virgin, I got a feeling he could get me to wherever he is. So this is just my thought. He didn't appoint me to wrath, and if I'm not appointed to wrath, he's taken me to himself, and this is what the word appoint means. It's, it's weird, but I think it'll even help the situation a little better. Again, on your worksheet. The word appoint is tithemi. To make or set for oneself or for one's own use. To set forth, it denotes a passive, horizontal posture or being prostrate, fallen down before him. To, to be appointed is a passive thing. This is my belief. When he says, I didn't appoint you to wrath... I believe the thinking is that God does not assume that I play an active role in his wrath. I'm not appointed to it, meaning you've got you denote a passive role, a prostrate role, a role of humility, a role where you're bowing down, not an active role of go into all the world and preach the gospel role. I didn't appoint you to wrath. I appointed you to come to myself. Well, if he appointed me to come to myself, and the word appoint means prostrate, the moment we get into chapter 4, what do we see around the throne? We see around the throne the tribes and the elders and all the people around the throne, and what are they doing? They're falling prostrate down before the Lord, going, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
I think it even backs up that the church will be in heaven falling down before the Lord because I'm not appointed. In other words, I've been designated now. I'm not here to work. I have been appointed to be with him. And when I'm with him, I'm prostrate worshiping him, not on planet earth trying to work the gospel. I have that opportunity now to work the gospel. Here's the thought, though. When we think about the book of Revelation, and anytime, you know, often the word rapture is brought up, this is not on your worksheet, so it'd be good just want to write, write it down. It may help you work through it with people. But I often get this when we talk about the rapture of these churches. They say, oh, you're just one of those get out of here kind of guys because you don't want to go through persecution. Don't you know that the church is going to be persecuted? Don't you know that we're to endure persecution? That persecution is what makes us strong. Persecution is what moves the gospel. And my answer is, oh, absolutely I believe that. We will be persecuted. I just thank God I live in America and I'm not right now. But being a Christian doesn't mean you absent of persecution. It didn't say we've not been appointed for persecution. It said we've been appointed not for wrath. They're two totally different things. Jesus himself said you will be persecuted. Jesus himself said that people will kill you. People will chop your head off. People will destroy you. Persecution is punishment by the unbeliever upon the believer for having faith in Christ. So right now, if in America, watch, they started killing Christians off like they do in other countries. Throw us in jail, chop our head off, put it on a YouTube channel... Uh, you know, we hate Christians. And they started doing that in America. If they start doing that in America, it is not a sign of the tribulation. The tribulation is not punishment by unbelievers on believers. That's going on right now all over the world. However, the word wrath has nothing to do with an unbeliever to a believer, but the judgment of God upon the unbeliever for rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation is not about persecution of Christians. It's about the judgment of God. Does that make sense? So, so as you just think about this, will we Christians be persecuted? Yes, we are right now. Will we go through the judgment of God? No, I don't believe we will. So whenever that transition happens between judgment of God begins and persecution of Christians is over in the sense of you know, I believe the church is gone, and I believe that's the rapture. I believe the moment the rapture comes, the wrath of God starts, and we flip the tables. But you just have to think differently about how that works. Let's unveil the mystery a little more. Back to the number seven. Genesis chapter four brings in the number seven again. When Cain killed his brother Abel... And the Lord said to him, verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone should find him and kill him. So in chapter 4, we get another connection of the sevenfold judgment of vengeance that would come upon Cain if somebody touched him. In other words, if you touch him, vengeance seven times over will come upon you. So now we not only have the number seven connected to the work of God, to the rest of God, to the sanctification of God, and to the blessing of God, but the number of seven is connected to the vengeance, watch, of being separated from vengeance. 
I'm going to put a mark on you. And if he touches you, anybody touches you, vengeance will come on him seven times over. So even in God's thinking, this word sevenfold, this connection of seven is a setting apart, a putting of a mark on my life so that, watch, if vengeance comes against me, God will defend me. That's the thinking of it here in this passage. All right? The next one, let's unveil it a little more. Gets a little deeper. Genesis chapter 5. It's a familiar story. It's the story of Noah. But to me, it's just mind groundbreaking for our brain to think about it. Lamech, verse 28, lived 182 years and had a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. I've given you the, the words I want you to take note of because the next verse will tell you why I think this scripture is important. But I want you to notice what daddy, daddy, Noah's daddy, I said Daddy Lamech, but Noah's daddy said about his own son. He said, my son will be one who will comfort us because of what? The curse. Now a lot of us talk, especially when we talk about the wrath of God, we talk about Noah as a type of Christ. That Noah would comfort us from the curse and just as Jesus has comforted us, that's the Holy Spirit from the curse. He died upon a cross. But watch the next verse. It's interesting. So all the days of Lamech were how many years? Yeah, I just don't think that's just by chance. I mean, let's just logically parse this one out. He's going to die five years before the flood if you do your math. Methuselah is the guy that will die and the flood comes when Methuselah dies. We'll leave him off. Let's just take daddy, Noah's daddy. If you do the math on Noah's daddy, he lived, I think, 595 years after he birthed Noah. And the flood came uh, in year 600 of Noah. So five years before the flood came, Lamech dies. Now here's the thought. If you've lived 777 years, couldn't you make it to 778? I mean, what happened? Just all of a sudden his heart goes, I'm tired. All of a sudden his back went out. After 777 years, what just thought, I'm just going to take this guy out? If you made it that long, couldn't if he at least made it to 782 and died with the flood, knocking on the door going, let me in, Noah. But five years before, at age 777, God in some strange way took Noah's daddy home or he died. I believe the reason he went at 777, it goes back to this whole thing of the mystery of seven, is that it's going to teach us that this guy named Noah is distinctly different. He's set apart. He's blessed by God. He's sanctified. He's holy. He's hallowed. And he's going to end my work and begin a new one. So I don't think it's just by chance that Papa went at 777 years. I think God was wanting us to see that this thing is a supernatural Eternal thing. So now when we start connecting it to the seven churches, it's not just like, eh, seven churches. 
God is working something supernaturally out that this guy makes it to 777 years old. Let's look at a few more. Let's just keep unveiling the number seven, and I think it'll make some clear sense to you in a moment. Genesis 6, 18. But I will establish my covenant. Now, we've got the word of an established covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark. Now, here's the people going into the ark. You, who is you? Noah. Your sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, their wives, we don't know their names, but three of them, obviously. So there's six, your son's wives, and your wife. And who are all those people supposed to go be with? With you. So again, I'm going to take this same thinking where it said, I've appointed you not to wrath, but to be with me. This same thinking was happening in the book of Genesis with Noah that these three sons and these three wives who make a total of six and then Noah's wife make a total of seven, meaning that God is going to sanctify and separate these seven people as holy and hallowed from all other people on the planet these seven will be separated and I'm going to holy and hallow this family, this group of family. I'm going to bring them out from all the other families, distinctly call them to myself, and I'm going to take these seven and I'm going to put them with Noah. And the moment he puts the seven with Noah, we now have eight. I'm not going to get into all the math of the Bible, but the number eight in the Bible is a sign of a brand new start. We start all over. So anytime God distinctly holds on the number seven, what he's going to teach us is the next thing that transpires will be a brand new start. Why? Because seven is an ending of a work and eight is the beginning of something brand spanking new. It's why the Sabbath was the end and then we start over. We, we start this thing brand new again, the first day of the week. But then we rest on the Sabbath and then we start fresh again. It's an ending of a week. It's the starting of a brand new week. The same is true with Noah. I'm going to separate the seven people of your life as hallowed and distinct from all other families of the earth and I'm going to bring them and put them on the ark with you, with you and there will be eight of you total. Seven as a sign of my ending of a work. Seven of a sign of my blessedness and my sanctification. Seven of you are a sign of that I am going to work in some way totally different because when I shut the door there's eight of you and when I open it back up it's all brand new. Everything will start over. I believe the same is true in the book of Revelation. The seven churches are going to be brought unto Jesus. And when the seven churches are brought unto Jesus who is the head, the next thing that will begin to happen on the earth will be brand new. Never been done before. Never have. It's a beginning. A beginning of what? A beginning of the wrath of God. When those seven churches are brought unto Jesus, who is the ark of our life, who is the comfort from the curse, who is the rest, who is the sanctifier, and he brings them to himself, the next thing in the equation is, watch, the door opens itself. This time it's not a door in the ark. This time it's the opening of a scroll. And so just like the door opened and a new beginning came out, so that the new beginning is the scroll is open and we're headed towards something 
pretty profound. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to lose you there. Here's the thought. How many people are with Noah? Here they are. Three sons, three wives of sons, and one wife of Noah. And then the beautiful thing, those seven people make up the color of the rainbow. That's why the rainbow has seven colors in it. Roy G. Biv. Red, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. I don't even think that the seven colors of the rainbow that show up are happenstance. Why would God put seven colors in a rainbow? Why not three? Why is the rainbow, we'll talk about it later, the rainbow around the throne now is one color, it's emerald, but here it's seven colors. Why is it one color here, but it's seven colors here? Because here, one color represents a brand new beginning, and over here, it represents I'm finished with the work. I will never again curse the earth again. I will never again bring a flood upon it like I did upon humanity ever again. When you see those seven colors, it is a sign, seven. My work is done on that. I'm done with it. You can rest on it. You can put it on it. I've sanctified it. I'm moving. Let's go. And so these seven people aren't just happenstance. God could have probably found more to put on the boat. But in some strange way, there was only seven human beings that could get on this boat. You, weird, you came from the seven. This is your Ma and Paul. You came from these sons. You go all the way back. You trace your heritage. You end right here. Everybody else is dead and gone. Now, I mean, we can go back to Adam, but this is where the generations begin to come. This is where the nations begin to come. This is where they begin to go to the Tower of Babel and everybody's in one language. Is these seven people. This is a thought. Please don't hold me to this, but it is a good thought. The number six is the number of man, right? It's why the Bible says the mark of the beast will be 666. It is the number of man. It's not the number of rest. It's not the number of a finished work. It is the number of man. If you really want to study 666, we'll do it later. It's connected to the amount of gold that Solomon had. So we'll tie that together in the future. But it's amazing to me that maybe the three sons and the three wives represent the Jewish nation, the three sons, the Jewish nation. They're directly descended from the loins of Noah. Maybe the three wives could represent the Gentile nations. And maybe the one wife of Noah is the church. So maybe, I don't, I'm saying this is true, but it's just a thought for those of you that like to dig it out deeper. Maybe in these seven, God is also showing us how he sees the nations. The Jewish nation, the Ham, Shem, and Japheth that will come out. Then the wives of those sons, the Gentile nations that will try to marry into the things and intermingle. And then the wife of Noah is that separate bride, that bride of Christ so if you want to study that on your own, I'll leave that with you. It would be a good thought and may keep you busy. One more thing. Let's look at a little bit more out of the book of Genesis, the number seven. You shall take with you seven, each of every clean animal, a male and a female, two of the animals that are unclean and a male and its female, and also seven, each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive. Uh, oftentimes in the teaching of Noah, the kids know the animals went in two by two. That is true. But he also said, what I want you to do is I want you to take out seven of every clean animal. Because these seven animals are going to be used for sacrifices. You're going to have to kill them. 
You're going to have to shed their blood. This is going to be the way you're going to be able to have a relationship with me. So God just didn't take a pair and a pair. God actually had him take more because when he takes more, he's going to have to use these seven for blood sacrifice so he can have a relationship with God. And this is it in Genesis 8.20. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and he offered a burnt offering on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. The number seven is connected to sacrifice, burnt offerings, and a soothing aroma. So what I tried to do is go through the book of the first several chapters of the book of Genesis to try to unveil when Jesus said, write a letter to seven churches. That it's not just a number, but from God's perspective, there's something very supernatural to tell us. So it makes me think, what is God trying to tell us? This is on your worksheet. If we pull those things out, there's seven of them that I went through for you. Out of those scriptures, I highlighted them, but now I've taken all the highlights and just put it on one screen for you. So if the number seven means an end of God's work, and this is what we said and highlighted, we saw that seven meant blessed rest, protection from vengeance, comfort from the curse, the establishment of a covenant, the joining with in marriage, a keeping with life, and a sweet-smelling aroma. That joining with marriage or the children of Noah. We saw that that was part of it. It's part of the seven. These kids and their wives joined in with seven. Noah's wife, the kids and their wives. So if the number seven is an end to this, and this is the definition of seven. Of, so when God hears seven, this is what God is thinking. I'm thinking it's the number right past six and it's lucky number Vegas. When God uses the number seven... He's thinking blessed rest, a sanctification and protection from vengeance, a comfort from the curse, an establishment of the covenant, a joining in marriage, a keeping with life, and a sweet-smelling aroma. That's what he's thinking. How many of you think that's different than the way we see the number seven? Every one of these things were accomplished in Jesus Christ. These se- I don't have time tonight, and I'm not going to go there because it's not part of our teaching But these seven ends of seven of God's work, I believe every one of them can be seen on the seven sayings of the cross of Jesus. You go study it and try to match it up as you see it. But for those of us who believe there's a blessed rest, for those of us who believe we're protected from vengeance, for those of us who believe we're comforted from the curse, the Holy Spirit is our comforter. For those of us who believe we have a covenant with God, our sins have been washed away. For those of us who believe we've been joined with Him in marriage, we are the bride of Christ, we're united with Him. For those of us who believe God will keep us with life, we get promised eternal life, we have it forever. And for those of us who believe right now we are considered an aroma of God. The book of Corinthians, I'll give you a couple of scriptures in a minute. The book of Corinthians literally says that you and I are the aroma of life to some and the aroma of death to others. Your life gives a smell off. So this is just my thinking and here we, here we are. I'm going to give it to you in just a minute. Matter of fact, I'll put it up there now. Has everybody got this before I go on? Yeah. All right. This is it in a sentence. So I'm going to put the whole what I just taught you in a sentence and then You can fill in the blank, and then I would like you to just study it this week for yourself. But this is the sentence. Could the reason God chose the seven churches be His way of letting us know? And I've 
went through Genesis to tell you the definitions and the outworkings of seven. But could God, when he picked seven, want us to know this? And here it is. I'm bringing you with me, which will end my work through the church on the earth, bringing about an end of rest, unleashing vengeance of the curse, so that only those who are married to me will be kept alive because of the offering of myself. My belief, and again, I'm going to call it my opinion, my opinion is when Jesus said to John, write to the seven churches, Jesus was thinking, my opinion, that, that this work of the church is going to come to an end. And when the church of Laodicea comes to an end and we enter into chapter 4, John says, immediately I was in the Spirit. He's left earth, he's in the Spirit, and much of what he sees now is from a heavenly perspective. Which is weird, we'll talk about that too. Because chapters 1 through 3, it's seemingly he's on the Isle of Patmos looking out, but in chapter 4, he's up in heaven looking down. It kind of appears to be that way. I am bringing you with me. We saw that the number seven is a bringing with. It's not him coming to me. It's me going unto him. It was not Noah going out to get all the people. It was God putting the people with him. It will end my work through the church. I believe there will come a moment where the work of the church will end on the earth. And we will be in a season of judgment while God is playing it out. And we will come back and rule and reign with him, that new beginning. We begin to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. It will bring an end to rest. As you go through the book of Revelation, I, I challenge you to find anywhere other than heaven that there is rest on this planet. It's nothing but chaos, torment, hell, and misery. From animals to people to boils to humans... It is the moment the end of the church work is done, it releases the vengeance of the curse. The seals begin to open. The bowls begin. The trumpets begin to sound. So that only those who are married to me, bringing him to himself, will be kept alive because of the offering of Jesus. So I believe that will kind of sum what I think the number seven is. Let's look at this thought. Here's the thought. That holy nation is going to be finished. Before we go any further through the book of Revelation, God is going to finish the work of the church. And I believe that's why he wrote to seven of them as a sign, I'm going to finish my work and bring them to me. And then the next thing is chapter 4 on, because he's a God who is a beginning and an end. Chapter 4 through chapter 21 is the will finish of the Jews and Gentile nation. That's how I think the book plays out. I tried to give you that the best I could. All right, here's a scripture. I'm going to end here. We're getting ready to wrap it up. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to look at this in depth to come, but I think this is interesting because, again, God pulls out the number 7. This time, not just with sacrifice or Noah or Cain or a Sabbath day, but to his holy people, he said, there's going to be a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people in your holy city. And then a weird phrase is in there, to finish. Again, the number seven is about a finishing. I'm going to finish something. And what he tells me he's going to finish is 
He's going to finish an end to the rebellion of sin to atone for the guilt for his people and his holy city. This is not Christians. When he's writing to Daniel and prophetically giving it to Daniel, Daniel's people are the, are the Hebrew people. And he said there's going to come seven years on the Hebrew people where I will finish the decreed for the people in the city to finish their rebellion for rejecting me, put an end to sin, atone for their guilt, and bring everlasting righteousness because I'm going to confirm the prophetic vision and then this weird word again and anoint the whole, my most holy place. So now God, this is where I'm going, now that God has finished the work of the church on the earth, there is going to come another set of seven where he's going to deal and finish a seven-year period of time on the Gentile nations. And this is the thought. As Jesus will bring an end to the work of the church by bringing the church to himself, so shall an end be brought to the rebellion of the Jewish people. The holy city Jerusalem, Gentile nations, sin, and the kingdom of Satan. This one phrase sums up what I've been trying to teach for the last two to three weeks. The church is definitely distinctly separate and sanctified and different and hallowed and holy and blessed and comforted from the curse. And will be brought to the, Jesus himself who is in heaven. But when we're in church with Jesus, it doesn't stop the work of Jesus on earth. He just ceases to work through us and now he begins to work to bring about the prophetic word that has been prophesied over the Jewish people, over the city of Jerusalem, over the Gentile nations, sin and the kingdom of Satan. And, and I, I, I challenge you to find anywhere the church shows up after chapter 4. You will see words like saints and that. We'll talk about that but I believe that's different. That's the thought. So here's what's happening. The ending of the work of the church is what will be termed, and you'll hear it termed by people who believe in it. Some don't believe in it, and that's okay. The ending of the work of the church is the rapture. It's why it was written to seven churches, a finished work on the planet Earth, bringing God's people to Him, marrying Himself to Him, bringing them into heaven where he is. And then once that happens, he's going to begin to end the rebellion. And the ending of a rebellion is the, called the tribulation period. The tribulation period is not a period that is even distinctly connected to the church. It is connected to the rebellion of Israel and the Gentile nations and sin and the kingdom of Satan. That's the book of Daniel we just went to. These are distinctly different. God's going to end the work of the church through the rapture and he's going to end the rebellion of everyone else through the tribulation period. And again, I would challenge you, they're both distinctly different, they're separated, and God will deal with them separately. Just a thought for you, so you see. Seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and I do not think that it's interested. One of the seven sayings of Jesus was, it's finished. Again, intimating, when you see the number seven, I'm going to finish something. It's going to be at a rest. It's going to be over. And the next thing you will see will be a new beginning. What is the next thing you see after the seven sayings of Jesus? It is finished. You see a resurrected Jesus. It's a totally different Jesus. 
So my belief is when he says write these letters to the seven churches, he's going to finish their work on the earth and the next time you see us, we will be ruling and reigning in glory. Not just down here on the earth like we are now. We will have immortal, glorified, sanctified bodies. And we will be ruling and reigning totally different than we are now. We're not immortal right now. We're not sanctified bodies right now. We don't have this glorified body yet. I know some of us do. We go to the gym, but most of us don't. (laughs) But one day we all will. But I did want you to understand that even Jesus himself lived up to the challenge of before I die. Why didn't he die and just say six things? I mean, why seven? If he said seven, why couldn't he at least tried eight? Because God wants you to know that the seven days of creation, the seven animals to Noah, the sevenfold vengeance to Cain, the, the seven sayings on the cross, the seven words to the church, the seven angels over the church, the seven years tribulation, you have to understand that I'm working a work, I'm finishing a work, and I'm bringing people to rest. When I finish my work with the church and I'm done with the church and I brought the church to myself and the church has been brought to myself, I'm going to start to end everything else through through the thing called the tribulation period. Here's a thought for those of you, and I'm going to end right here. We went a little long because we we had that little glitch, but let let me wrap it up. Just two more slides. But these are for those of you that like to study and go a little deeper and, and dig it your own. So I, I threw this in as a, a, a chip on the table for you. Jesus, who is the head of the church and the head of his body, prophetically, they weren't allowed to break his legs. They could beat the tar out of him. They could beat him beyond recognition. They could beat him so poorly that you wouldn't even know who he was, the Bible says. That his visage would be marred so badly. I know Mel Gibson did a pretty good job uh, in The Passion of the Christ literally beating the tar out of Jim Caviezel to give you the best analogy of perhaps what Jesus looked like on the cross with his beaten so badly that his flesh peeled off his body so that his internal organs were seen and his bones were seen and And yet he still has to carry the cross and he still has to hang on it. Beaten to a bloody pulp, weird that he had enough power to say seven things. Not five, not eight, seven. But one of the seven, it's finished. But after he died, John 19, 32, 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And and this is my thought. And they didn't break his legs. The wrath that Jesus took upon himself that sanctifies me from the wrath of God to come, the one thing they could not do because it was prophesied was break his legs. And my belief is that this is a prophetic look at the church to come. That though the head may be persecuted and his body may be persecuted here on the earth and we literally may be beaten to a bloody pulp on this earth, the one thing they cannot do is go against the prophetic call of God and what we are and who we are. And it says, and they cannot break his legs. And though they persecute us in that, this is my belief, is that I believe that there is a keeping even of the bones of Jesus in the wrath that he took. And I believe that God, because we are his body, when the wrath is poured out on the planet, prophetically he will bring him to himself and say, you will not have to suffer this breaking. 
that is going to happen all across the planet Earth. That was just my thought. You dig it out deeper and chew on it as you want. Here's that thought. Jesus spoke seven sayings on the cross signifying the vengeance of God is complete. It is finished. And those who now believe in Christ become part of his unbroken body, sparing the body of Christ from the wrath to come. I I felt to go this way before we get into the seven churches because I wanted you to understand these letters are not just a letter. These letters are very supernatural. And as I said at the beginning, uh, these letters, as we dig them out to come, I'll show you this again. These letters have a, a past and then in the very center a personal message Strange though it be, these seven letters, and I would encourage you to come. I know we like knowing about the Antichrist, and we like knowing about all of that. You know, that's the fun part of Revelation. But I would really love to challenge you over the next two weeks, as we dig out these seven churches, please try to be here. Because they're written to you. They're written to you to inspire you, to talk to you, and to show you the way you should go in this life while you're here on this planet Because God is going to speak to us personally and He's going to speak to us prophetically through them. So there's not just us studying about seven churches of the past. We're going to literally be studying about ourselves and what God wants to do with us right now on planet Earth. It's going to be fun. We'll tackle four of them next week, three of them the week to come. But I hope that kind of gave you an understanding of the word seven. I hope you study it a little more. I love you. I bless you. And as I say every single time, That concludes the end. Good night. I'll see you later. Be blessed. Have a good one. I love you. Thank you so much for joining us on the Believer's Church YouTube channel. If you would like more information about Believer's Church, you can visit mybelieverschurch.com. If there is anything that you need prayer for, please email us at amen at mybelieverschurch.com. Be sure to check back next week for a brand new message.